Welcome to this combined episode of Engineering Matters and the Tunnelling Podcast. I'm John Young. This week, we bring you an interview that I recorded a couple of weeks ago at the Institution of Civil Engineers, just outside a British Tunnelling Society workshop that was going on. I sat down with Keith Bannerman. He's the chair of the Young Members Group at the International Tunnelling Association, and I wanted to ask him what a career underground was really like and how a budding engineer might become a tunneler. As well as being ITA Young Members Chair, Keith is also Chair of the Australian Tunneling Society Young Members Committee and has worked on major tunneling projects in his hometown of Brisbane and also where he's living now in Sydney. Keith is a graduate of Queensland University of Technology and is a senior associate for tunnel engineering firm BAMSA. I first asked Keith how he began his career in tunnelling. How did I get into tunnelling? So it's a story that I've been asking a lot of people recently as to how they got into tunnelling. It seems that most people have a similar story, which is they kind of accidentally fell into it. An opportunity came up and they took it. Um, And that was the same for me. So in 2007, I was doing my undergraduate degree uh, and an opportunity came up for a free ticket for the ATS short course. So in Australia, we run a three-day intensive um, tunnelling 101 effectively uh, and that was being held in Brisbane where I was studying and uh, went along and heard genuine rock star tunnellers um, talking passionately about an industry where uh, it was vibrant, there was risk, uh, there was opportunity um, and there were challenges. Keith then went along to the three-day course at the University of Cleveland where he saw renowned tunneller Arnold Dix present on risk and insurance and Keith was captivated. This isn't just your day-to-day type of career. Um, Working in tunnels is is more than that. So that was 2007, um, and that summer I was lucky enough to take a summer with a company called Teese, and they were building a a little 450-metre-long shallow cover tunnel, uh, busway tunnel, canopy tubes, lattice girders, shotcrete lining, um, drain tunnel uh, with less than one deep cover, um, and that really got me hooked. So after that I I thought, you know what, I'd like to do more of this. So... The next year, I'd paid for myself to go down to the proper ATS conference. Yeah, I, th- I think I was hooked. But a career in tunnelling didn't immediately take off for Keith. He and his wife had a daughter, and the prospect of long hours underground didn't seem like a good fit for a new dad. So Keith took a couple of years out to go work as a designer. I've just walked past a building that I worked on the Shard many moons ago. I've never seen it before. Um, I did a bunch of the initial temporary works, um, but that was the first time I'd seen it in the flesh. But after 18 months in the design office, Keith couldn't shake the tunnelling bug and returned underground in Brisbane on a 6.5 kilometre motorway tunnel called the Brisbane Airport Link. One of those really big, ugly jobs. Um, Had 12.5 metre TBMs, 18 road headers, drill and blast, microtunnels, kilometres of cut and covers, viaducts, um, everything there was. And... um, Huge time constraints, all, all prefaced in pre-GFC thinking. Um, it was really the making of me, I think, as a tunneling engineer and driving the passion for that that profession. Um, working in large span caverns, 28 metres, um, TBM traversing through, uh, and, uh, and understanding the financial side of the business as well. Brisbane Airport Link was a major project and gave Keith exposure to a wide range of tunneling excavation methods. And Keith was still a young man. I would have been 23, 
have really got the bug, I think. At this point of his career, Keith had already worked on the Shard, a landmark London skyscraper, and the Airport Link project, a complex road tunnel. But it was tunnelling that held his interest. I suppose the interesting part of the Shard is the first, well, is the basement and the plunge columns, which is where I was doing my stuff. Once you get above ground level, it's pretty vanilla. My perception was there wasn't really a lot in it, whereas tunnelling, it, it's not, um, they're not problems that have been solved before and not problems that you've seen before. You have to gather knowledge from a number of different sources and apply it in a bespoke way. So when we're at universities and we're trying to describe the tunnelling world, you've kind of got the civil world which is becoming more and more sanitised in the way that you get a design and you go away and you just get told to do it. Largely the packages will be subcontracted. Uh, and then you have the mining world, which is the other end of the spectrum in Australia, where everything is direct managed by, um, by the mine operator. Uh, it, it's probably the other end of the spectrum in terms of control. Tunnelling has this happy balance where in Australia, your tunnellers will generally be direct employees. So you've still got a genuine man management part of the job and you're working with people who if they're the same age as you, they've got 10 years more experience because they came straight out of school and straight onto the tools. So there was an element of um, being directly engaged and being able to make change um, on a daily, yeah, on a, on a day-to-day basis, which you just don't necessarily have that opportunity in, in some of the other more rigid structures because the tunnelling has to respect the ground, which is always the, always the challenge. Um, you can't really... Uh, you, you can plan, you can plan as, and you can do scenario testing, but ultimately um, you've got to work with uh, the ground that you encounter. So you've got to you've got to change, and that 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 works for not just the tunneling portion of the project, but when you're dealing with interfaces for um, the later stages of work. So when you start getting into the concrete works and the fit-out works, things change on site, um, and you have to respond to them in those tunneling projects. So Airport Link was a fantastic project where you had. A turnkey project um, inside a PPP um, in a very short time frame with all the different every every single technology you could think of was there. We were f- um, we weren't face blasting, but doing long bench blasts, large TBMs, um, EPB machines. Um, it was f- always changing. Um, the thing that got me in at Airport Link was the complexity and the people. Um, I liked that I didn't necessarily know exactly what was going to happen in a month's time. Um, we had a bit of a plan, but uh, up until the ribbon was cut, we, we didn't really know because during the commissioning of that project, we had some setbacks. Um, but ultimately, uh, one day the tunnel was closed and the next day it was open. And now when we drive through it, when we're in, in Brisbane, uh, the kids still know that, that there's a certain part of that tunnel that's Dad's tunnel, and that uh, makes me immensely proud. Balancing the commitment to a mega project and commitment to a family is an ongoing struggle for people who work in all areas of engineering. So I've got two young kids, uh, well, not so young anymore, but um, Airport Link was was a particularly heavy time because um, I was effectively earning your stripes as a as a tunnelling engineer. So there were some long hours there, and that that wasn't um, definitely wasn't the best work life balance. I probably would have done a few things differently. I mean, I got married and had a child during that project and I took a week off for each. The response from my boss was, well, why are you taking a week off for having a kid? And it was said in jest, um, but it was an environment where 
it was you got to be there to get the job done. So it was it was a challenging time for us as a as a partnership, but it did help me kind of reevaluate what I wanted out of a career. Uh, so that was at the end of that project, I'd, I'd join the company I'm currently with um, in a more consultancy role uh, and changed focus a little bit. Um, and really, there's been a few key leaders that I've had through my career who who have highlighted that you don't necessarily need to be there every other day. If you do your planning, there's no need for you to be there 16, 17 hours a day. Um, and, and sometimes that's that's what it was as a site engineer. You were, you know, you had to be there for pre- start at 5 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning. And sometimes if something went wrong, you'd be there till 10, 10.30 at night. Um, so it was, it was a tough period. Um, you learn a bit, uh, but you, I think um, I, have a, I have the utmost respect for people who can work on site continuously for their whole career but I just I'm not quite that personality um, I think I've got more to value add in the space that I'm working at the moment which is more more um, more government side and providing that conduit between technical people and um, and the and the ultimate owners uh, who may not necessarily know much about tunnels but they're the ones who are who are managing the community expectations and the, and the checkbook at the end of the day Towards the middle of the last decade, tunnelling work was slowing down in Keith's hometown of Brisbane. And not to be one to sit around and wait for opportunities to come to him, Keith and his family up sticks and headed for Sydney. And around the same time, he became a more active member in the Australian Tunnelling Society. The challenge of shaping his own career as a tunneller highlights a challenge the industry faces as a whole when attracting and fostering young talent. It is hard to actually define uh, the career of a tunneler. That's what that's one of the challenges we're finding with the ITA is, and the ITA young members, and even the Australian Tunneling Society, is the question of how do you how do you make a tunnel engineer? Is it through uh, an undergraduate and a master's degree? Is it through time spent underground on site? Is it through um, having a mentor? And it, it depends on the person and the personality. Um, so how do you you get those opportunities, generally it's by seeking them out. I've seen a similar pattern for a number of other young engineers who've come into the industry. They've just turned up to our monthly Tunnel Society meetings, met some people, and then after five or six meetings have have got a job offer as an undergraduate and then moved into a graduate position. Um, And that that collegiate sense of the industry uh, is something that I'm I'm really proud of and it's a, it's a great way to get a start. Sometimes it can seem a bit impenetrable for people who aren't, aren't engaged in the, in the industry already, uh, but there is some, some fantastic opportunities if people are willing to invest the time uh, to attend their, their local functions and, and in, invest in that, that sense of community. One of the first questions to be answered in defining a career of a tunneler is understanding what it means to be a tunneler. My whether it's a tunneler or as an engineer, um, it's for me. It's to solve problems for the betterment of society. Uh, that's kind of my core belief and core driver. Um, whatever we do, we want to make sure that it, it's better than it was before. While you're doing it, it'd be nice if you got got paid. That's fantastic. But really, it's the betterment of society. I think is that's my key driver. So consciously, through my early part of my career, I made decisions where. My remuneration wasn't as large as it could have been, um, but I took on roles, gained experience, um, which led to opportunities down the track, which I, I wouldn't have got if I'd 
if I'd chase the money. So for me, that's it's solving problems. And that problem might be ground support, or it might be logistics, or it might be contractual interfaces. But ultimately, it's it's not just as a tunneler, but as an engineer, just solving solving problems, or maybe you don't solve them, but having a go at trying to figure out something better than exists there already. The world of engineering is in a push for rapid change to help the global population develop a more harmonious relationship with our environment. This is driving some innovative thinking and some unusual projects, such as the Swiss attempting to underground fishing and farming, or the Chinese developing rectangular TBMs for locating entire urban centres below the surface. Yeah, so I do often joke with Klaus, um, who runs Scout in Switzerland, uh, as to fish should probably grow in the ocean, not underneath mountains. But I think he's, it, it's some good work that he's doing, and it, that it, it, it's proving a concept rather than the idea of aquaculture necessarily underneath um, the Alps. I've seen they're doing some good work with data centres, and I can see some, some real opportunities um, in that space. In terms of some of those amazing projects in China, um, it, I think it is just always making sure that we're not just doing something uh, really interesting in the engineering space because it's really interesting. So sometimes a tunnel won't be the best answer, and we need to be mature enough to be able to say, hey, look, Maybe if we could put it at surface in a viaduct, or maybe we don't build the project, maybe that's a better outcome for for the industry. Pardon me. And for society as a whole, maybe maybe a tunnel's not the best idea. But if a tunnel is a good idea, and we've we've gone through the appropriate governance, then yeah, things like a rectangular TBM in the right ground conditions, absolutely, there uh, you do get an efficiency of of uh, of volumes. Um, it means you can do things that you couldn't do before. Uh, the, the the technology in China, particularly for long alpine tunnels, where they're forward probing using all sorts of techniques, um, is moving ahead in leaps and bounds. So the rate of advancement is, um, is truly staggering. Um, and particularly where you, you don't have the ability to put in a borehole every 20 meters, um, it's, a, it's a mitigation which allows the surface area to be undisturbed and you can you can put through your rail tunnel your road tunnel your water conveyance tunnel your sewer tunnel whatever it is without having to interfere with um with the surface environment so in terms of innovation innovation for innovation's sake isn't where i i I see the most value it needs to add something new it needs to provide value Tunnelling is sometimes seen as a nomadic profession, with tunnellers journeying the world to wherever the work might be. I was also lucky enough to be a, a judge on the ITA Awards this year, oh, sorry, in 2019. So I did get to see some of the amazing things that happen, not just in Western countries, but also seeing some of the amazing developments in a place like China. Um, it, it's fascinating, it's amazing. Uh, I'm probably just not quite in the right headspace to to really deep dive learn mandarin and, and work in china but it's a fascinating place um and as we move more and more into into the 21st century um i mean in australia we call it the asian century because of the rise of china and india um in in global politics but as much as anything in, in tunneling um there's uh there's a huge amount of work in both of those jurisdictions. We can see the shift in the centre of tunnelling moving from a European focus to uh, further east or 
into even Africa. Um, we've had the Nigerian Tunneling Association being founded in the last couple of years, and they've got some huge challenges in terms of infrastructure, and hopefully tunneling and engineering more broadly can help to um, alleviate some of the challenges that they, they have uh, in the health of their people. Keith is focused on opportunities at home. Australia has a wealth of tunnelling work in the pipeline, and Keith argues a geography that is challenging to the most intrepid tunnelling minds. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, I get to live in Australia, which is, which is a very safe and comfortable place, and we do have some variability in geology up and down the east coast. You've got the sandstone of Sydney, you've got the tough and narrowly fern vales of Brisbane, and then if you really want to get into some interesting stuff, you can go down to Melbourne and deal with the Coot Island silts and the basalts. And that's before heading over to Perth and seeing the, um, the the formations that they have over there, which are, you know, more akin to what you see in Southeast Asia than, than the East Coast. Look, Australia is a, a busy place at the moment. Um, I've spent a couple of years working in the Westconnex projects. So that's a $16.8 billion road network underneath Sydney. There's Cross River Rail happening in Brisbane, Inland Rail, Sydney Metro with various stages, tunnels in Melbourne with the Melbourne Metro Westgate Tunnel and the Prospective North East Link project, as well as the massive Snowy Hydro 2.0 project. So at the moment, um, I'm working, uh, supporting the clients team in the Sydney Metro West project, and it's a, a great team with a, a great leadership. But in terms of what I want to do when I grow up, I really don't know. Um, this is a discussion that I'm, I'm having at the moment, and having that discussion with a few different people as to um, what do I want to do? Do you want to continue to influence projects um, in the way that the, that I currently am at a, at a project level? Do I want to go more into understanding how finances work or is it, a, is it a government type role? At the moment I'm not quite sure. I am just interested in the next challenge for the moment and um, trying to still go back to that idea of getting the balance right with family. So uh, trying to understand as, as my family grows up, where do I want to be as well? So luckily I'm I'm in an organisation where I can have those discussions with my employer um, to try and get that balance right so that we do, because the last, uh, unfortunately in our industry we do see a lot of people um, with relationships that go through turmoil um, and that's blue collar workers as well as white collar workers just because of the nature of the, of the, of the projects that we work on and the, the space that we work in, it's, it's pretty tough sometimes. So. I'm becoming more and more conscious of making sure I'm there for my kids um, so that they can they get my time as well. Uh, ultimately, the employer pays for the time when you're in the office. When you're not in the office, you should be able to switch off and, and cultivate other parts of your life. Joining the industry so young and becoming so heavily involved in the young members' societies has not only shaped Keith's early career in tunnelling, but it's also set the tone for the rest of his career. I've got a strong passion for developing young engineers and I'll, I'll continue to foster young talent wherever it is. I suppose what I'm trying to work through at the moment is making sure that systems are in place to uh, get continuity in the organisation. So we're really looking at trying to make connections between sister, cousin, brother organisations. So connections between various nations, some who have some challenges uh, in having discussions. For example, discussions between uh, South Asian countries. We've got a representative who works in India uh, who's doing a, a power of work providing connectivity between 
between the nations in the region to further bolster um, the tunneling, tunneling expertise in the area. I finish as the chair of the ATS Young Members at the end of this year, as well as my ITA role. The intent is that the ITA Young Members is a stepping stone rather than the end goal. And we've seen that with a few of the past senior leaders of the ITA Young Members. We've had um, a chap called Yuri Karlasek, who's gone on to um, found one of the working groups within the ITA, the Digital Engineering Working Group, and Peter Salak, who's moved through to Itacus, uh, working in the underground space world. Kate Cooksey is, a, is another fantastic example. I understood she founded the BTS Young Members in 2008, and she's now the chair-in-waiting for the next um, BTS committee, uh, which is a, a fantastic result to show that pathway from a young engineer to a, a senior leader. And I think it's more just providing that pathway, providing a, a way for people to go from being a graduate through the system and supporting people from not just when they're a graduate, but all the way up to when they become uh, a senior engineer. They earn their stripes, they, um, they start managing people and uh, ultimately can give back. Uh, and it's fantastic to see some of those professionals like Kate and Yuri and Peter giving back um, in the way that they were supported as they were coming through. Tunnelling is a global challenge that will be solved with global solutions. The best opportunity for future support for young tunnellers is at a global level. Keith explains how a shared vision and greater collaboration is driving forward the International Tunnelling Association's young members' efforts. So the ITA young members, we've, we've narrowed it down to four key topics that we're trying to cover and four key goals that we're trying to instigate. Uh, and they are collaboration, connection, development and integration. So what we're finding is a lot of people have really good ideas, uh, but they don't necessarily know who to talk to in different areas. So the collaboration is uh, encouraging collaboration across borders and across languages. And we're really starting to see that happen with the maturing of some of our member nations. We've, we've got 34 organisations who either have an official young members group or, or have um, young members engaged with the ITA. The next one's connection, uh, developing an active, connected global network of young tunnellers. And that's being able to know who to get in touch with if you're looking for a job in a different country. Um, I've had a number of people looking to, to relocate to Australia or New Zealand and I've been able to point them in the right direction. Maybe not source them a job directly, but at least know who to talk to. And the next one's development, and that's really talking about piece that Kate, Peter and Yuri are going through at the moment. It's growing the ITA young member participants to be the future of the ITA, because ultimately we're an integrated organisation. The young members aren't off just having fun, having a, having social gatherings. Really, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be about developing the leaders of tomorrow. And the fourth one is the integration piece. So making sure that we're further integrating the young members into the organisation, and that's within the ITA there's working groups and committees um, to make sure that we're getting voices heard as well. Um, there is all a challenge in a number of organisations where volunteer organisations are seeing a decline. It's becoming less part of the fabric to volunteer your time and effort to an industry group. So we're trying to foster that uh, as, as a fantastic opportunity. It's, it's a two-way street. What do you get out of being engaged with an organisation like the BTS, the ITA? You get relationships with people from all around the world. Uh, there's a technical proficiency. Um, there's soft management skills. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic organisation to be involved with. So we want to make sure that 
the 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 grey-haired experience is passed on from the old to the young and we're, we're starting to do that a bit in Australia especially where we get senior engineers and young engineers to come together and break down barriers between generations because what we found is even if a, an engineer is 70 and the other is 22 they have the same drivers so they may uh, have a leaning to, to, to better society or, or be really interested in rocks. So you get these amazing friendships and, and collegiate discussions which happen between people 50, 60 years apart. So we're really working hard to try and develop that pathway into how someone can become a tunneler. If you're interested in pursuing a career in tunnelling, a good starting point is to visit the British Tunnelling Society website at britishtunnelling.org.uk and find out about upcoming meetings and courses. The Tunnelling Podcast and Engineering Matters are a production of Reby Media. This episode is produced and hosted by me, John Young. Martin Nurk is a series editor for the British Tunnelling Society. Script supervision is by Bernadette Ballantyne. Audio editing by Ross McPherson. Our budding young executive tunnel producer is Rory Harris. Engineering Matters will return in two weeks with a fascinating look at how satellites are saving bridges. And the Tunnelling Podcast will return with another episode next month. Take care and stay safe.